0: Welcome to the millennial politics podcast and the brand new podcast a podcast brought to you by the folks at brand new congress i'm your host jordan valerie my pronouns are she her and hers and you are listening to our joint series on venezuela today i'm joined by gabriel hetland professor of latin american caribbean and u.s latino studies at the university of albany and author of the crooked line from populist mobilization to participatory democracy in chavez era venezuela thanks for coming on.
1: thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Of course. so let's start with the big question what's happening in Venezuela right now
1: um, so it's been an interesting week to say the least, um, as listeners may know, uh, the weekend was um, exciting again to say the least with the u s uh, planning to deliver quote unquote humanitarian aid um, by breaching literally breaching uh, the Venezuelan Colombian border and also the border with uh, Venezuela and Brazil, and then some aid coming in through Curaçao, an island off the north coast of Venezuela. And the sort of point of that exercise was explicitly not so much about actually delivering aid to Venezuelans, but to pressure Maduro, the president of Venezuela, to step down or be removed from office. And they hoped to do that by embarrassing him, by showing him to be a sort of dictator who doesn't care about the well-being of his people, who's willing to starve his people in order to stay in power and keep aid out, and to encourage military um, soldiers, generals, military uh, personnel in general to defect from the government. Um, And that was sort of used by uh, folks like Marco Rubio, Juan Guaido, the self-declared interim president of Venezuela and the head of the National Assembly, and then Julio Borges, who's a opposition leader in Venezuela to call implicitly on the part of Rubio and explicitly on the part of uh, Borges um, and somewhat in between for Guaido for military intervention by the US. Um, So, that happened over the weekend. And then the last couple of days have seen a group of of meetings, a series of meetings take place, one by the so-called Group of Lima, uh, which includes a number of Latin American states, mostly conservative governments in Brazil, Colombia, um, and elsewhere. Um, and there's been Security Council meetings in the United Nations. But the really important one, the group of Lima, which had been supporting the US efforts explicitly said that they are not in favor of military intervention. Um, So as of now, it seems like that option, which the US clearly was hoping to get a little bit more traction for is not being supported by even conservative governments in the region. So it's a little bit of a you know, status quo in Venezuela, I think, at the moment, Um, although there's obviously still a lot of uncertainty. um, And uh, we'll have to see uh, what happens next. So, that's sort of, you know, the immediate picture of what's happening in Venezuela right now, the sort of more medium term picture for uh, listeners um, to sort of just grapple with what's happening is that um, there's a conflict, a a very prolonged um, conflict that goes back, you know, 15, 20 years even between the opposition and the government um, over uh, who's going to be in control of Venezuela. Um, and the heightened conflict has been happening over the last, you know, five and a half weeks um, with uh, Guaido declaring himself to be the interim president being supported by the US um, and really upping the ante and trying to sort of provoke uh, a much uh, more fiery conflict within Venezuela to try to get Maduro out of power. So. There's a lot more to be said about all that, but I think that's you know more or less what's happening in Venezuela right now.
0: And in a Jacobin piece, you outline three principles, non-interventionism, self-determination, and solidarity with the oppressed, that we should guide our response to Venezuela by. Could you expand on those three?
1: Um, sure, yeah. Happy to expand on those um, principles. So, the first one is just the idea of non-intervention, and that's synonymous with the idea of national sovereignty. So, uh, we obviously live in a world of nation states, Um, and the basic principle of national sovereignty is that nation states shouldn't interfere in the internal affairs of other nation states. And I think for sort of, you know, leftists or progressives, or really anyone I would say who's reasonable, this is a very important principle in particular given the inequality of the world system of nation states. There are more powerful countries, the US being the most powerful country right now, but there's other very powerful ones. Russia, China, you know certain states in the European Union, Um, and then there's much less powerful states like Venezuela, Bolivia, Haiti, um, Honduras. We can think of many, many states. So um, over the you know centuries, more powerful states have tried to push less powerful states around. They've done this through colonialism, through imperialism, in a variety of ways, and through neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism. And so, unless there's a principle to sort of say that's not okay to happen, uh, there's nothing in the realm of sort of um, thinking to say, why, why can't this happen? So, the principle of non-intervention or national sovereignty says that states can't just do this to other states. If we um, allow that, then it would basically be a sort of law of the jungle and force would dictate what happens. So, whoever the most powerful state is, they would be able to do anything. Um, so, that's the basic idea of non-intervention. And I think that it, it has a clear application in the case of Venezuela, the US has literally no right whatsoever to intervene in Venezuelan affairs, um, period. Um, and so the current efforts that the US is making to do that, I think that people who believe in non-intervention, people who believe in not, uh, national sovereignty should be opposed to. Um, and there's also, I think, practical reasons beyond the sort of moral argument for opposing that that. The U.S. has actually done a lot of damage in Venezuela over the last couple of decades. They've encouraged the most radical, most violent, hardcore right-wing uh, opposition, which is engaged in sort of terror campaigns within Venezuela um, to terrorize the population, to um, you know occasionally set people on fire, uh, to bomb uh, public buildings and schools. Um, there's been beheadings that have happened in, in various. Protests. Um So there's a lot, by the way, a lot of legitimate peaceful protests, but the US has always been encouraging the most violent, the most sort of hardcore factions within the opposition. Um, and that's wrought a lot of damage in Venezuela over the years. The US is also um, inflicting damage through sanctions. Um They've been doing this for, you know, about five years, four and a half, five years now. Um, under Obama, continuing under Trump, and the sanctions have really escalated since 2017 and worsened an economic crisis, which we can talk about because it has complicated origins. So the US has really tried to push this agenda of regime change for a long time, and it's had bad consequences within Venezuela. Um, so I think there's a very strong case to make for this principle of non-intervention. There's some exceptions that I lay out on this article where if there's a genocide happening or if there's a humanitarian catastrophe that the uh, country in question is inflicting on its own people, then there can be exceptions. I think we need to think about those exceptions. But it would be utterly absurd to think that the US could argue that A, that there's a genocide. That's just not true. Or B, that there's a humanitarian catastrophe that the US is not responsible for in part. Um, so, there's not... I think we can argue over whether there's a humanitarian catastrophe, there's certainly a very serious crisis within Venezuela now. Um, But the US is one of the actors that has made that crisis worse, even though and we can speak about this a little later that the Venezuelan government bears a lot of responsibility, but the US has played a really important role in that. So, it is utterly absurd and totally hypocritical to think that the US could play a, a role in stopping it. And the, you know, the most concrete way of uh, putting this point is right now, the US has imposed oil sanctions on Venezuela, which is effectively depriving the government and therefore the Venezuelan people through government resources of billions of dollars, um, probably per week, but certainly billions of dollars over the coming months. Um, and they were offering 20 million in aid over the weekend. So it's just absurd to think that they're serious about helping uh, Venezuela with aid when they're actually making things worse with their sanctions. So that's the first uh, principle. The second one is... Um, the idea of supporting self-determination. And this one, I think, gets into some trickier issues with respect to Venezuela. And I think that, you know, it before entering this conversation, it's important to reiterate the U.S. has literally zero right to interfere in uh, Venezuelan affairs, period. So anything else that we might say about the issue of self-determination means nothing about the U.S.'s right to interfere, which it has none uh, whatsoever. Um So, the right to self-determination is simple that people should be able to participate in decisions that affect their lives, usually in its sort of more liberal democratic framework. uh This is considered the right to electoral democracy, the right to sort of, you know, freedom of speech and assembly and things like that. um, And certainly the right to elect officials who will then make political decisions in a more radical form, we can think about this much more encompassing is. Sort of a radical participatory democracy, even a socialist democracy, economic democracy. But that you know might be for another conversation. Um, so even in its more limited form, the right to self determination would say that people should be able to, at the very least, elect leaders who are going to make policy decisions. Um, and then the final thing I think is arguably the most important point, which is solidarity with the oppressed. Um, so I think that you know the simple point there is that. People on the left should not have loyalty primarily to governments that quote unquote call themselves socialist or leftists or revolutionaries, but to ordinary people, to the poorest, to workers, to the groups that in Latin America are called the popular sectors. People who are the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most discriminated against, the most exploited, the most oppressed. Um And it's clear that right now, people, uh, that group of popular sectors, the poor, the vulnerable are suffering profoundly in Venezuela. And they're suffering certainly from the US sanctions. Um, They're suffering anxiety and worse from the US threats of war, but they're also suffering from a devastating economic crisis, um, which the government of Venezuela bears very significant responsibility for, for a variety of uh, reasons, not managing oil, um well, not diversifying the economy, but in particular, this um mismanagement of a currency policy, which allowed hundreds of billions of dollars to be illicitly diverted and massive amounts of corruption to happen. So solidarity with the oppressed, obviously, totally obviously means opposing uh, the US sanctions, the oil sanctions in particular, it totally obviously means opposing Um, the U.S. efforts to have a military solution, in quotes, to the Venezuelan issue. Um, So trying to create space for Venezuelans to really decide their future. It's a complicated question. It's not entirely simple, but I think those are the things we have to be grappling with right now um, to really understand what's happening in Venezuela.
0: Could you elaborate on the right-wing faction of the opposition that the U.S. has supported and the violence they've enacted?
1: Sure. Um, so the opposition to, uh, to Maduro and the opposition to Chavez runs the gamut from the sort of far left, to far right. Um, and, uh, there's been various sort of major instances of opposition protests. There was a coup in 2002. There was an oil lockout from above in 2002, 2003. More recently, there's been waves of violence in 2014 and 2017. And those waves have been led by a middle, you know, somewhat middle upper class student movement have has had an important role. There's been uh, small groups of youth uh, who are often masked, who are inflicting violence. Um, and the US in those waves, you know, the most recent ones being the 2014, 2018, 2017 uh, waves of violence that happened in Venezuela were called Guarimbas, which are sort of street mobilizations. And it's really important to recognize that there was lots of peaceful protest happening. And the government was responding in ways that we shouldn't support. So there was repression undoubtedly happening there. Um, But there also was a sort of, I think it's somewhat appropriate to say, a fascist element of street violence, which was directed at, um, you know, innocent citizens, um, directed at state personnel, including state security forces, but designed to inflict them to inflict chaos and damage. Um, and the U.S. was cheerleading that, and there's clear evidence. Um, a colleague, Tim Gill, has done research showing the U.S. was funding that, um, efforts, and the U.S. had very clear links, um, in particular to these more radical factions. And Juan Guaido, um, even though he, you know, has a nice discourse, he appears very reasonable in the media, he is from the more radical factions of the opposition. Um, so I think that gives a lot of people in Venezuela pause, including people who are upset about Maduro. Um, So that is, you know, and that faction, I guess to sort of, you know, finish unpacking it, they've really ascended since roughly 2000, um, you know, starting in 2014 with that first wave of violence. Before that, there was a more moderate faction, also sort of on the right, but a more center-right party, Primero Justicia, which itself has internal divisions. And some parts of that party have gone much more to the right. Uh, recently, but they had a more moderate, let's, you know, get along with Chavismo, let's copy Chavismo, let's, um, you know, actually see it as a legitimate force. Um, They lost a lot of influence since 2013. Um, And then since the 2015 National Assembly election, which the opposition won, this more hard right faction has really ascended. And they are clearly, um, you know, clearly have the ear of the Trump administration and clearly have sort of been uh, directing things in terms of what their program would be. If they were to get in the government, it seems likely that they would implement, you know, very market-based, uh, development program often called neoliberalism, um, or free market fundamentalism, which would be very friendly to the U S very friendly to foreign capital and probably inflict very significant costs on the poor cutting social spending, uh, cutting education, cutting healthcare, cutting subsidies to the poor. And the most vulnerable. So there's, you know, very significant reasons to worry about what they might actually do if they got into power.
0: And you mentioned earlier class dynamics. What exactly are the class dynamics at play here?
1: Um, Sure. So, you know, very blunt um, and not entirely accurate, but the sort of blunt class dynamics is that for most of the Chavista period, the core working class, the so-called popular sectors were supportive by and large of Chavismo. Um, that wasn't across the board. I mean, if you went to a poor neighborhood in various parts of Caracas, for instance, you'd find that most people would be supportive of Chavismo. So they might have, you know, anywhere from 55 to even 70, 80% of the vote in those neighborhoods. Um so there was, you know, some opposition, but not all that significant in most of those neighborhoods for much of the Chavista period. It, you know, it varied a little bit. And then overwhelmingly, the uh, middle, upper you know, and elite classes in Venezuela were supportive of the opposition. So that, you know, broad split was certainly true, and it certainly continues to be true to this day. So if you think about the core support for the opposition, it's going to be the very upper classes and the core support uh, for the government, which is very much reduced, one has to recognize, is going to be more, much more so amongst the popular classes, the military, which is not a class sector, per se, but they're also an important support for Maduro these days. Um, but that, you know, that broad class split has become much more complicated in the last couple of years, even in that sort of really started, I think in 2015 to be visible at the electoral level. That was an important national assembly election and I was down in Venezuela as an observer for the election and, you know, talked to dozens of popular class voters on the day of the election and the vast majority of them where I was. Uh, were planning to vote for the opposition. And then looking at the electoral data, it showed that, you know, certain neighborhoods that had been, you know, bastions of Chavismo for, you know, its entire period, 23 de enero being, you know, 23rd of January being an emblematic one in Caracas, uh, voted a majority for the opposition. So, there was a shift that started to happen. And the people I talked to then weren't in favor of neoliberal policies. They were just in favor of change, as they told me. And the economic crisis was pretty severe already. Um, there was massive shortages of goods. There was very long lines to get subsidized goods. And they just wanted things to work better. They wanted to see an end to the lines, as they told me. They wanted to see an end to the, you know, severe economic crisis. Um, and I think since then, and probably accentuating in the last couple of years, the, you know, popular classes within Venezuela have increasingly uh, moved away from Maduro. And polls suggest now that really the majority of Venezuelans do want Maduro to go. Um, and that majority would be a largely popular majority in the sense of class. So largely, you know, informal working class, the unemployed uh, people of low income, um, which is most Venezuelans these days. Um, and so the support for the government that we saw in the past has, you know, significantly re- reduced that. However, doesn't translate directly into positive support for the opposition. So again, it's a complicated, somewhat messy reality that we have to grapple with that, you know, there's millions of people who clearly are upset with Maduro and previously supported the Chavista project. And a significant portion of those from what we can gather um, are not, you know, gung ho about the opposition, not gung ho about Guaido. And what do you
0: think, given all these competing narratives, how should folks who support self-determination, non-intervention. How should we be framing the discussion in the US?
1: I think in the US, we have to start with the threat of US war. Um, I think that has to be a priority. I think that um, I, I don't agree with the argument that that should, you know, people should be supporting Maduro, but I think we should be utterly opposed to uh, the U.S. war, to the U.S. sanctions. I think we should be going to protest. We should be writing Congress people. We should be doing everything we can to say the U.S. doesn't have any right to intervene here and certainly should not be engaged in military action, certainly should not be engaged in oil sanctions, which have the real risk of creating a famine. According to opponents of Maduro, they're even saying that even U.S. officials are sort of openly playing with that idea. Um, So I think that should utterly be a priority. You know, we absolutely have to be opposed to a U.S.-led coup, opposed to U.S. intervention there. Sort of end this question by saying an absolutely crucial part of that because it gets so little attention in the U.S. is to say that the demonization of Chavismo has to stop, um, period that Chavismo should not be seen as an evil project. And in fact, if you look at the record of the Chavista project, it was incredibly impressive for a number of years in many ways. It really reduced poverty. It really reduced inequality. It provided a lot of significant popular empowerment to people in Venezuela. It provided dignity for many people there. Um, it had challenges. It had contradictions. It had things that I was critical of and remain critical of even in the past. But um, the demonization of that project and the demonization of individual Chavistas is abhorrent and should be is something that we need to be speaking up against um, because it, as long as that happens it means that it's sort of a you know, it's a new polarization it's a new project of trying to silence a significant population and that's something we shouldn't allow at all
0: okay well thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today
1: thank you pleasure speaking with you
0: And to our listeners, to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela, make sure to subscribe to both podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites at brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.